Welcome to Shed Life. All right, let's do this. Oh, you, oh, you started it for both of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it started on your end, right? Yeah, okay, cool. Perfect. Mm. All right, so today we are joined by trade unionist and political activist from London, Nesta. Nesta, how are we today, sir? Uh, yeah, I'm doing very good. Uh, how are you doing? How's lo- I'm good, I'm good. How's lockdown treating you? Um, well, I'm not locked down, so uh, I'm working as normal. I'm one of these... Uh, uh, Miners. Key, yeah, key workers who are key workers. getting rewarded for uh, putting our, our lives at risk by uh, random rounds of applause from a bunch of uh, entitled middle-class wankers who get to stay at home for weeks and weeks on end uh, and not risk their lives. But, you know, the rounds of applause make us feel great. That's true. I mean, um, I guess the round of applause is a target at just the NHS staff, though, it seems. So maybe not the other key workers involved in this. So you're saying I'm I'm not getting a round of applause? (laughs) (laughs) That was... That was the only, literally the only thing keeping me going, and you've you've totally smashed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks for that. <clears throat> Sorry, right. you know, I just wanted to uh, make sure you knew that I'm, knew I'm, where that, you stood. That no one gives a shit what I'm doing. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't want to set your expectations too high. Do you know what I mean? You're not like thinking oh, I'm going to get a clap t- Thursday evening. Just crack on, isn't it? And don't expect too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but let, let's be honest. The round of applause is pretty hollow, anyway. Uh, I think I think it's generally designed to actually make the people who are giving the round of applause feel better about themselves. I think that's the main driving factor behind the round of applause, because the the people who are who are sitting at home, uh, isolating, shielding, doing nothing. I imagine they have a. a a sort of feeling of nagging guilt or, or this feeling of, uh, uh, of entitlement that people have generally is exacerbated by the fact that they're now sitting at home, they're not involved kind of in the economy or the production of, of the country. So therefore their, their level of guilt has increased somewhat. So in, in order to placate their own feeling of guilt and their lack of contribution to society, they give themselves a round of applause, uh, every Thursday at 8pm. So you think they're giving themselves a round of applause as opposed to NHS or key workers? Yes, to make them feel better uh, about themselves. It's not really... I don't think anyone who's working in the NHS uh, feels particularly rewarded by the round of applause, especially when you put it it into the wider political context of NHS workers being resoundingly shafted for... Over a decade now, uh, they've had pay freezes, you know, had the bursary taken away from nurses, they've had immigration clampdowns on, on nurses, uh, they've, they've had the junior doctor strike, uh, three years ago, junior doctors having their wages massively cut. Uh, if you look at hours worked for a junior doctor now, most junior doctors get paid less than the minimum wage. They, they took away their overtime payments. Some of these doctors are working 70, 80, 90 hours a week for a salary at the end of the day, which is only, what is it, 30,000 or something? So you break it down, hours paid, they're all getting paid about two or three pounds an hour, putting their lives on the line. And I, I don't remember any of these people clapping, being out on the picket lines with the junior doctors, supporting them in their strike. Uh, a lot of these people clapping, voted Tory, uh, They've supported the NHS cuts. They've uh, supported attacks on NHS workers. And now they come out on their um, front porch and start applauding. So it's all a bit sickening, really. So am I right in saying (laughs) you don't join in the clapping? (laughs) 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 Just to to summarise that whole piece there. You could say that, yeah. <laughs> but I think you've touched on something quite important because I was speaking to a couple of my mates who are doctors on the front line, and they—I was surprised because obviously I haven't 
read too much into the clapping. Uh, at the start, I thought it was uh, <clears throat> meant to be a feel-good factor kind of thing because I did go on the balcony. I just heard a bunch of noise. And for me, after being isolated uh, for a few weeks, I was like, wow, actual humans I can hear and see. So, yeah, maybe it was a, a, a case of clapping for themselves and well, making themselves made, and, and us feel good. It made you feel better, didn't you? Did it make 100%. you feel better? Yeah, it made you, made you feel better about yourself, uh, better about the country, the situation, you know. I mean, these are sort of, you know, they're very anxious and, and worrying times. A lot of people going through a lot of stress, uh, a lot of worry, you know. It's very understandable that and any sort of uh, collective activity like this, it makes us feel part of belonging to a wider community. So it does make us feel better about ourselves. And yeah, I, I think that's what yeah, sorry, Karen. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with this kind of shared uh, collective event making us feel part of a, a wider community. The only problem is the objective objective facts of how our society and community is organised uh, put paid to the lie that you know we are part of a kind of wider collective community or a shared endeavor or goal so there's some very naked kind of class conflict in the country nhs workers being very much on the on the sharp end of that uh with the government as the enemy so then the clapping presenting a front that we are all in this together uh government workers people at large it, it's not really supported by the objective reality on the ground so you're saying basically if it was labelled as not a clap for the NHS, but almost like a feel-good factor clap for all those people who are feeling anxious and uh, maybe alone and whatnot, it might be something good for spirit and keeping morale up, something like that, as opposed yeah, to labelled be, as the NHS. Yeah, it would be a bit more honest as well, though, wouldn't it? It would be a bit more, uh, you know, we're, we're doing this to make ourselves feel good, which is not, not really anything wrong with that, is there? I mean, no one gets hurt by the clapping it's, it's not damaging in any way but yeah you know, absolutely need to be a bit um, more on, honest about the motivation yeah no it's true um back to uh i'll say my mate he was saying the same sort of thing he's a doctor and he was saying this clapping he had a similar point of view to you actually uh maybe not so much politically driven but more a case of you're right the clapping's all well and good but we're still out here on the front line, majority of us are lacking in some key equipment and a lot of them are not feeling safe to work mm. and do so. Mm. And how, how are they expected to sort of continue risking their lives mm. for the general public when they're not being given these, you know, sort of mm. basic requirements from the, from the, from the country? Mm. Yeah. And then uh, I think uh, on top of that, then the government has consistently lied over the last two weeks about PPE. So they talked about this plane from Turkey, which was supposed to be delivering extra supplies of PPE to us, which they said was coming, I think, seven days ago, but which only landed yesterday. It's also very kind of uh, like worrying or sort of if you think of uh, the way we view ourselves, Britain, as you know, one of the global superpowers, one of the richest nations in the world. And then we're having emergency deliveries of PPE from Turkey, which is still very much a developing nation, isn't it? So very odd how the, these sort of tables have turned where a country like Turkey can, can bail us out of uh, what is basically a lack of planning from, from the government uh, around this issue. I, thought, I, think, I think that's a key point. The lack of planning is uh, something which is a lot of people love um, sort of intellects have talked around the world about because forget USA for a sec that's another issue but the the reason for delaying well okay not the reason for delaying the lockdown that's a, another issue in itself but the wariness of this issue is sort of it was well known in the scientific community uh, epidemics and stuff like that they are periodic they're not they don't just pop out of the blue there has been loads over the, over the over the decades and it's not something which is foreign to us in the sense all right maybe this is a especially infectious one a contagious one so the spread is a lot you know a lot larger 
<clears throat> but the planning should always be in place then, right? From pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies, from the government, from a production point of view. Why not create and build these uh, P, uh, set up PP production factories, or whatever in the UK? You know, like you said, why are we relying on going to Turkey and getting them from China, et cetera? Maybe there, there's an excess requirement, so you can get some from overseas, but the majority should be in place, surely, on shore, right? Mm. Yeah, and so, also... So, yeah, go, going back to your... So there is a, uh, a report which was published in 2017, Operating Framework for Managing the Response to Pandemic Influenza, which is a NHS uh, preparedness report, and it says pandemic influenza is recognised by the government as the single most disruptive event facing the UK today. As such, it remains at the top of the UK government national risk register. Well, there you go. And I'm assuming that's a short-term thing. So actually, the bigger risk, I think, would probably be climate change and mm. even ahead of that, maybe mm. nuclear war. But in the short term, absolutely, that pandemics and virus spreads are in the top three or what of uh, catastrophes that could affect the country mm. and the world. So the lack of preparedness is, 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 is obscene. I don't understand it at all. So, yeah, the NHS England Operating Framework for Managing the Response to Pandemic Influenza sets out the roles, responsibilities and functions of NHS England in preparing for and responding to an influenza pandemic. Uh, but by all report, uh, from all reports, it seems like the government uh, basically just did nothing. They were handed this report in 2017, which was previous one was in 2010, telling them that this is the number one risk to the country and therefore we have to prepare for the number one risk to the country. But since 2017, they've been busy with uh, Brexit and planning for getting out of the EU, which has been almost the entire uh, sort of the the entire sort of legislative life and political life of this country for the last three four years has all revolved around Brexit. So it's such a minor issue of preparing for a pandemic has been completely relegated. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, go on, sir. I'm sure if we looked at that report, you'd see like you know. One of the main things is PPE needed to deal with such a pandemic, but yeah, they just didn't. They didn't order it. They didn't get it in. It's, it's not like people are saying sort of, oh, in February, you know, the government, no one knew uh, how big this pandemic would be. The point is that the government should always be prepared for a, a pandemic. You know, it should. What is the point well, of having a, a state, a government, if it doesn't prepare for these sort of events? Well, I think if one, one industry you can look at is a big farmer, right? Big farmer out there, their key goal is to make profits, right? And they drive profits so hard and sell so many disruptive drugs, unnecessary drugs onto the market, so many beauty products and things which really, if you look at it now, is unnecessary. Their goal is to jack up the prices and drive as much of this, a lot of useless a lot, obviously not all of it, but a lot of useless products onto the market instead of spending time, you know, maybe researching the the next mutation of SARS and how it could be turned into a vaccine or, you know, things like this, which mm. which, which would have really uh, steamrolled the sort of production of a vaccine or a, yeah. not a cure necessarily, but more understanding of how these SARS yeah. viruses works. Because it's, no, no, it's a straight... No, no, I uh, completely agree. Yeah, like the... The resources a uh, big farmer put into uh, trying to find new erectile dysfunction drugs uh, or the amount of time, money, they look into uh, producing medication that will cure male pattern baldness. Uh, the, re the reason so much money is invested in, in these two things is that, you know, Bald men and men who can't get erections will spend lots of money <laughs> to number one get erections or number two get full heads of hair. So there's there's lots of profit to be gained in in those two particular markets. So big farmer invests a lot of research money into those particular markets. But uh, 
finding, say, a, a you know, a vaccine for malaria or, you know, dengue fever or any of these sort of diseases that uh, affect people in the, the global south, there's really not much profit to be made in that sort of drug. So they don't invest a lot of money into research in it. Uh, so, you know, we've got in 20, 30 years, we'll still have people dying of dengue fever in the global south. And you'll have lots of uh, white men in their 60s in America walking around with hard dicks and full heads of hair. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I've heard it first from Nestor. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> going, going, back, going back to the uh, preparedness thing, uh, there's a few articles on, apparently there was a, a simulation, a pandemic simulation run by John Hopkins University in America, <clears throat> where they literally, uh, they, they, they ran a simulation of what would be necessary to prepare for a modern day virus, a pandemic virus. Um, and that was done as early as October. Now, from that, you'd think of looking at the timescales, obviously nothing was done after that, right? That was simply a simulation run. They, they should have probably the most up-to-date information on how to deal with a modern-day pandemic. Yeah, nothing was done. So that's an early sign of, all right, preparedness, lack of preparedness. A month later, apparently, the U.S. intelligence briefed the, the gov U.S. government that this is a big threat. A SARS-like virus could almost hit us any, any moment. There's like... I don't know how the US intelligence agency works, but they obviously knew something was going to happen before. And that was another, that was another article reported as early as November last year, 2019. Mm -hmm. So again, not just a lack of preparedness, but the, 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 the sort of the full on denial by their government that this is not happening. We don't need to worry about it. Get mm -hmm. back to work, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And it, it's crazy. I mean, they even had a pandemic special unit or something in the US and the government disbanded that apparently at the back end of last year. So all this funds going to prepare or help deal with the pandemic. They just thought, actually, we don't need it. And apparently this is well after the, uh, the China report to the World Health Organization that we are in the midst of a potential pandemic. Mm. So, Yeah, I think this uh, it sort of fits in. So the British and American governments, uh, they're... Uh, the leadership, uh, they have a shared political ideology, which is that uh, they both, both believe in free markets. So their view is that the government uh, restricts the operation of the market. Uh, the market is the, the best uh, way of allocating resources. So they both believe that the, the freer your markets are, the better your society will function and operate. So their ideology is to roll back the state to free the market. So the, the less the state does, the, the better the country will operate because more of the functioning of the society is handed over to the market. So we can see now that a consequence of not believing in, in the state or the government is you don't prepare. You don't prepare the, the, the state to deal with potential crisis coming in the future. So Trump, you know, rolls back on any sort of pandemic planning because he doesn't see the government as the, the overriding uh, controller or manipulator of the American society. He hands that over to the market. I think the British government's initial response to the coronavirus, they only saw it as a risk uh, initially when the market started to crash. So the first action of Johnson and Rishi Sunak was to cut interest rates. When the, when the, the FTSE started to drop in February, their response was to cut interest rates and it, it implement a, a stimulus packet, a package initially in the budget, which was 30 billion, and then second, uh, a few days or a week after they introduced that, 300 billion uh, loan package for small businesses or businesses who are looking to, to be in trouble. I think it's very telling that their, their first uh, emergency reaction to a global pandemic is financial interest rates and loans. And it, it's not till a couple of weeks later that they take any sort of action to try and uh, medically protect the population and stop the deaths from happening. 
these 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 measures seem to come secondary to their measures to protect the economy and stimulate the economy. And I think that's a, a consequence of their political ideology and their belief in the market, uh, rather than their belief in the, the ability of the state to intervene in society and, and produce positive results. Do you think this is a, this is a neoliberalism? Liberalism. Yeah, that, I mean that is the the, the 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 ideology of neoliberalism is uh, you know to say that the the state is restrictive in what it does and it's not beneficial for society and we should give over power and control to markets because that's the most sort of free and democratic way of managing your society using free markets so individuals interacting in a free market would always find the the most sort of democratic way uh, and the most uh, the best way to allocate resources as well is through a market I mean, so, I think we we saw in 2008 that if you leave uh, markets to themselves, then eventually they destroy themselves. So the state had to intervene massively in 2008 to save capitalism all over the world. And again, we're going to see in the next months to years, either the state intervened massively to save capitalism again, or... Uh, you know, maybe they'll try another round of austerity. That's the other option they have, and try and uh, squeeze the worker in order to save capitalism. But I don't think there's anything, any sort of squeeze left in that. There's nothing left to squeeze out of workers in the West anymore. Workers are so uh, un- under the the yoke of capital at the moment. There's really nothing else to squeeze from them. Uh, so I don't, I don't see the austerity as being a viable option for the economy. Okay. So you think it will be in the form of what a bailout then is being the only option after things calm down in terms of health-wise? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, the, the easiest way to do it would be a sort of universal basic income. I mean, it looks like unemployment is going to be so massive in America and Europe that, you know, that's millions of people who've then dropped out of the productive economy. So they won't be spending money, they won't be going to pubs, bars, they won't be buying things, you know, they'll just be buying their basic essentials if they have, if they can afford to do that. Well, that's been an idea which has been tossed around by different politicians over the years. I know uh, Bernie Sanders had the idea, he was running uh, for the Democrats this this year. Um, what, what, ki- what kind of... He dropped out, didn't he? Yeah, he did drop out. <clears throat> A lot of people were saying uh, he dropped out too early. Um, but yeah, I, to be honest, I don't, I, I don't have an opinion on that. But um, what kind of level would that universal income be? What what's what's feasible, and what's what's actually going to help that you know the citizens, and what's actually feasible from financial standpoint? Mm. Well, I mean that's debatable, isn't it? Because it. That really depends on your view of uh, money supply, doesn't it? So there are economists, well, I think the majority of economists believe that, uh, you know, a government that can print its own money can really uh, run up as much debt as it wants, basically. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. which is basically what the American government has been doing for the last 30 or 40 years. They print their own money and obviously like a lot of... Uh, global trade is in US dollars. So they're able to create as much debt as they want inside the American society, which means they do have a magic money tree. The magic money tree is very real and it exists. (laughs) (laughs) They can just make money out of thin air, (laughs) which is how the money, money supply is made, really. I mean, even like banks can create money out of thin air. Like when you go to a bank and borrow money to get a mortgage, that money is uh, its just created by the bank. It doesn't actually exist. They just lend the money to you. They're, they're able to create. They've got Every bank has a magic money tree as well. Magic money trees are, are numerous. <laughs> they exist everywhere. <laughs> mm. But I mean, if talk about we, printing money. Mm. Print, we're, going, we're going off on a tangent here. We're, we're <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. It'll, it'll all lead back in circular fashion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... 
the the printing of money it seems sort of redundant going forward in the future. I mean, you look at one thing, this coronavirus, uh, so one of the stipulations for a lot of companies who are still dealing, uh, trading, whatever, you know, doing food deliveries and whatnot, everything is either card-based or online payments. Mm. There is no handing over of cash, obviously, because mm. assuming spreading of germs and all that. And there's some countries, I think, in Scandinavia have gone quite high uh, in terms of the percent of uh, going completely use, uh, cashless, if you like. <clears throat> How would that affect um, this idea of printing money to save well, print, the economy? Print, or- printing money is only like a, it's just a way of describing it, isn't it? Like most of that money never exists in physical form. It's just all uh, it's all numbers on a spreadsheet, isn't it? So that's the idea, like you said, with the bank and you know, having a mortgage. It's just pulling out that money or pulling out that figure from thinner. The main way uh, governments get money is by selling bonds. So you, you people invest in U.S. Treasury bonds, and uh, that's that's a way of uh, the American government uh, sort of getting cash. So pension funds, hedge funds, they invest in U.S. Treasury bonds. Is the, is, they're basically the the safest possible. Of, uh, uh, investment in the world. So when they invest their money, that's a way of the, the government getting cash uh, to spend. But it was quite interesting, like at one point in February, uh, UK government bonds went into negative territory, so they couldn't sell them. Uh, and that's when the Bank of England started buying UK uh, treasury bonds in order to re-stimulate the, the market. So people have got uh, the market got so spooked uh, in February with all those massive crashes that the central banks had to start stepping in and buying uh, UK government bonds in order to uh, re-stimulate the market and restore confidence in UK government debt. Uh, what was that? What's that? So there's a bit of background uh, interference. Yeah. It's all right. I think it's sorted now. Um, all right. Let's go back to this COVID then. Um, let's start at the beginning, the origins, or as far as we know what the origins are. Mm. I know you have a certain viewpoint on not how it started, but your take on it and the people who are kind of using this to um, – uh, I'd say bash the Chinese a bit, right? And it's uh, obviously the more it happens, uh, the more dangerous it will be to society because it will turn into a, a, a racial thing. If that's the thing, mm. if that's the right way of saying it. But mm. you know what I mean? Like, you know, is it fair? And you know how how you know how what should have been done differently, if anything, from their point of view? And yeah, what's your mm. take on that? I mean, I think there's definitely. So it came out of this Chinese wet market, right? So there's definitely an issue about how food production globally, industrial food production, the way we produce our, our meat, uh, is actually very dangerous and, and damaging to us. Uh, so mass production, industrialized meat is not good for us uh, environmentally, ecologically, or now as it, it seems like for this sort of, creation of new viruses as well so something that needs to be looked at globally because this sort of uh, industrialized meat production is global Uh, it's probably true that in China they probably have one of the worst working practices when it comes to uh, industrialized meat production I mean they make they make a lot of pork don't they in China and uh, I think it's very dodgy uh, sort of food production practices that they have over there but these things are global as well. So that, I mean, I'm sure like industrial meat processing in America or Europe could have just as easily come up with a new virus or a new mutation. I mean, we had our foot and mouth crisis here. Uh, when was that? In the 90s? Uh, yeah, I think I think it was 88 or something. It's yeah. first got reported. And then we had the, like the, the mag, mag cow disease one as well. Uh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, that, that was the 80s one. 
foot oh, mouth, mouth disease was the 80s, yeah. yeah. Foot, foot and mouth yeah, yeah. was either the 90s or the early noughties, wasn't it? I think early noughties that was, yeah. Yeah, both of which come from sort of industrial meat production as well. Uh, so, you know, we need to change those practices globally. But then for, for you know, that it suits the West to focus in on this being a, a Chinese virus, you know, like let's, let's focus on the fact this came for, from China. It's all about shifting the, uh, the, the sort of media narrative away from the West lack of preparedness, uh, especially in comparison to the Asian countries. So all the Asian countries, uh, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong and South Korea. Yeah. Specifically, South Korea seem to have handled yeah. this, you know, really, when you compare it to Europe and America, they've done absolutely brilliant. I mean, we can argue about the, the Chinese numbers and stuff. It's, it's always seems to be debate, debatable how quickly or well the Chinese got on top of this. Uh, we might never know the truth about that. But, yeah. I mean, we, I think we can say that, you know, maybe in the first two months, the Chinese were definitely trying to cover it up, downplay the significance of it, which is the same thing the European governments were doing in February still. So the Chinese were doing that in December, January, and in February the European governments were downplaying the significance of it, telling us not to be worried, uh, X, Y, Z. But it does seem like the Chinese took it very seriously and then reacted with uh, some pretty severe lockdown restrictions. I mean, the Chinese closed their mass transit systems, so the cities that were affected, they closed their um, tube systems, which is something no European city has done as yet. Uh, like even in Milan, which is one of the worst, of, or, you know, the, the, the subway in Milan kept, gets kept running the, the whole way through the, the crisis. So, yeah, it's a particular section of the Western sort of media and political class want to focus in on this being a Chinese virus, something that came from China. We need to put sanctions on China. China's to blame for this. But really, it, you know, the, brand, the, the virus was created in a random mutation. Uh, they have bad food production standards in China, which made this uh, more likely to come from China. But it's still possible that it could have come from any Western country as well, because we have some pretty bad food production standards uh, also. Yeah. So, I mean, like you said... The the food production standards are pretty poor globally, especially when you've got a lot of animals packed together in tight confinement. Um, and yeah, it's more likely to occur in China for, for reasons we've all seen with the wet markets. But thinking about the next time this happens, and if, if and probably more when it happens rather than if, um, especially with bats, where we've read reports of, you know, being there being reservoirs of bats out there carrying, you know, thousands or different strains of viruses we've never seen before. Mm. Um, so I guess a lot of the people's questions would be, how can we let these carry on, these wet marks continue if the risk is so much higher mm. or greater than this coming out from China? And like, like you said, I agree, they could come out of any country, and it has done in the past, come out of different countries. Mm. Um, but if this is the current day situation, and the likelihood is a lot higher, mm. what should be done to prevent it, if anything? But are these wet markets actually legal? I thought they were actually, are they illegal in China? I think they were made illegal um, at one point by the government when mm. the world sort of came down upon them, mm. and then they slowly started uh, delegalizing it. So, um, but there, there was a comment uh, I can't remember. There was watching something a while back, and it was showing yeah, it was made illegal for a while, but it's all back in the open now. They just changed the type of species which are allowed to be um, mm. showcased on these wet marks. I think I think that's what it was. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about Chinese law or Chinese wet markets <laughs> to be able to offer a offer offer a, a, a solid opinion on it. <laughs> I've I've heard you're an avid fan of the wet market, though. Maybe we could do a tour of Chinese wet markets. We could do like a live podcast where we walk around Chinese wet markets, talking yeah, about. Yeah, you've all, got. All, you've got to try everything in the wet market. I've got to bite the head off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can give a live commentary of how how disgusted you are <laughs> basically yeah i'll show how revolting it is and show your reaction <laughs> thing is knowing you you would probably love it i could just uh, imagine you asking the lady by the market or something oh i got any chili sauce or anything 
<laughs> what would you think? What's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? That's a good question. Um, I think octopus. Octopus. And that's not. That's not. Oh well, yeah, that's, that's not, not that weird. But but for me, that was the weirdest thing. I think I yeah. tried one of its tentacles or something. Yeah, yeah that you, was. You, you go to like the Mediterranean. Everyone eats octopus. Yeah, but you know me, I'm a very, uh, very uh, standard palate. You know what I mean? Ch- chicken and broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> beige. You're big into beige food, aren't you? <laughs> green and yeah, green and beige food is what serves me best. Crisps and chip sandwiches. Uh, oh yeah. Give uh, me some bread and cheese. No, the, I think I ate a sea cucumber in uh, in China. That was quite weird. Sea cucumber is yeah. like a big worm, a big sea worm, uh, hairy. Yeah. Hairy sort of sea, sea worm. Yeah. Was it alive? Was it alive? No, no, it was dead. It was dead. Okay. No, I don't. I've never eaten anything that's alive. Uh, that would be weird, wouldn't it? Don't you think that would be weird? Eating something that's alive. Yeah, just feeling it crawl around you and feeling the bones and the tendons and stuff as you're tearing through it. I mean, <laughs> I, I thought you would love it personally. You seem like the kind of character who'd love it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess the Chinese do eat some weird uh, birds' nests as well. I've had a, have you had a bird's nest before? Nope. No, that's uh, yeah. Sounds like a hairstyle, mate. Bird's yeah. nest. So you eat it all together, like the baby, the little baby chick that's in the egg and the nest is all part of the same thing, and you just you you, you sort of swallow it all down. Uh, and then you well, get what's bird- the bird's nest? Bird's nest made of what, like twigs and shit? I'm not sure what it's made of. You can eat it though. Yeah, very strange. I'm not sure. Uh, Interesting. And where was that in China as well? Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, we'll do that tour of China wet markets and see uh, if we can get you to eat some more weird stuff. That would be yeah. quite interesting. We could. Uh, we'll probably get followed by the Chinese secret police, won't we? Should be. Uh, <laughs> it should be quite Maybe. fun. Maybe. Uh, you know, talking on looking at numbers, um, like we were saying, the Asian countries, their numbers, they manage it quite well, apparently, from from their numbers of cases and deaths, reported deaths. Mm. In Europe, which countries, we've seen a few countries um, start to ease some of their lockdown mm. uh, measures. And I mean, am, right, am I right in saying I think Sweden, their numbers were quite low from what I've heard. Um, but their lockdown measures weren't tight at all. If if or they did not exist at all, or something like that. Is, are you yeah, aware of that? Yeah, it seems like Sweden have had a different policy to the rest of the world. But uh, I mean, their numbers at the moment don't look that big. But I think it's a wait and see with that one, isn't it? I think there's a lot of people in Sweden quite worried about the policies the the government have approached. Uh, yeah, because they basically said we don't need a lockdown. Um, yeah. And like, like you said, their numbers at the moment aren't too bad. But, mm. yeah, you never know. It, it could be a turn and it could skyrocket, you know. Yeah, so wait and, wait and see at the moment with uh, with those countries. Uh, yeah. yeah. But the Financial yeah, and- Times have a report out uh, this morning that the true they're, – they they're looked at the Office of National Statistics figures and the uh, – the spike in death rates in the last month, and they think the the true death toll in this country for COVID nineteen is four, over forty thousand. So the I think the current official government figures are twenty five thousand in the UK for, for deaths. I think yeah. the deaths is currently on seventeen thousand, isn't it? Like oh yeah, reported deaths. Yeah, seventeen thousand. Yeah. Yeah, but you're but, you're right in saying there was a period where they said uh, they were the numbers were forty percent higher than what they were reporting. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah, the Office of National Statistics are saying that the the numbers are forty percent higher uh, due to deaths at home and care home deaths, and now the Financial Times is saying uh, they think the numbers are uh, over forty thousand. Wow, but th- this looks like it's. Cr- could be quite similar in Spain or Italy in that the uh, the death totals are actually a lot higher uh, because no no country seems to be able to uh, count the deaths 
uh, in any sort of uh, properly scientific manner. Yeah, I mean, because the numbers we get from the, the UK briefings, it, it does clearly state hospital deaths in hospitals. So yeah. like you said, deaths which occur outside the hospital, they're not going to be they're not going to be reported straight away, first of all, because on the death certificate, they're not going to be able to write COVID until there's, I don't know, some sort of post-mortem or whatever it is, right? So that all takes time. So maybe now the, with the death certificates coming through with all these people who weren't in hospitals, maybe, yeah, that's jacking up the figures. And the, the, yeah, the case is definitely going to, going to be the same for uh, other European countries. Which is frightening then when you think about like the numbers that are coming out of America if those numbers are 40, 50% below the actual reality, then it's pretty, uh, it's pretty stark how, how badly it's going to hit the United States. Uh, it's, it's crazy. I mean, have you seen the protests in the US in certain states over the last few weeks, uh, last few days? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> like these people walk around with protests with guns saying, end the lockdown, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then I think the president of the US as well, um, firing out those tweets that liberate Michigan and liberate this, that, and the other. Which are still kind of unexplained as well, aren't they? There was no, there's no explanation being offered as to like what he was actually getting at, you know. And the governors of those states are sort of like, sort of baffling, you know, going, what, what is the president doing? What's he trying to do? Uh, it sounds like he's trying to start a civil war, mate. Mm. Like all these people carrying guns around, marching through the city, saying, end the lockdown. And then the yeah, president and then the, saying, free the city, free the yeah. country, uh, free the state. And then they've got these signs saying, you know, lockdown e- equals communism. Uh, and uh, and then when they're spoken to, I think there was one, uh, you know, there's a few of them saying, look, I'm not worried about the coronavirus. I've got Jesus. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Jesus protects me. I don't, I don't need a doctor. You know, I don't need to worry about the virus. I think I saw another video where there was a guy... Uh, Complaining that he couldn't get a uh, lawn feed, you know those like uh, pellets you put to feed your grass, and he yeah. was out. He was out of the protest because he couldn't get a uh, lawn feed, and he's like, you know, we need to end this lockdown. It's un-American. My grass is going brown. <laughs> <laughs> there should be nothing brown about my house. <laughs> I mean, imagine, imagine wanting to 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 put your life at risk or the life of your family just to keep your lawn green. I mean, <laughs> I mean how, how committed are these people to America, the idea of the ideal American suburbia that they're willing to die in order to keep their... For their grass. Yeah, they, you know, because this is the, the sort of idealised American suburbia. Your lawn has to be green, doesn't it? And you've got to be out on your lawn with this lawnmower waving at your neighbours. Hi, Chad. How are you doing? Isn't it great to be American? My lawn is very green. <laughs> and I will die to keep my lawn green. <laughs> I will kill to keep my lawn green. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're fucking bonkers, aren't they? But, I mean, that country's uh, fucked, isn't it? Uh, let's be honest. You know, They're looking at 30 million unemployed when we come out of this. 30 million unemployed. Uh, uh, a senile, uh, demented sex offender president, and the only alternative now, next year, if they have the election next year, so that's the way of seeing that happen. They've got a senile, demented sex offender Democrat running against him, and thirty million unemployed. I mean, there's no, there's no future for that country. <laughs> Like, you know, for the for the Democratic um, <clears throat> nomination, obviously Bernie stood down, but there's talks of getting the is it the governor of New York, that Cuomo guy. Cuomo. Uh, yeah, getting him to run against Biden for oh, the, yeah. for the elections later on. Yeah, he's like an extra from Goodfellas, isn't he? Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> so they, I mean, they, fuck they, you, they, Trump. They, fuck you. I'm gonna fuck you, Trump. <laughs> He does, he does seem uh, uh, like a bit of a, you know, hard-nosed New York guy, doesn't he? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't really know anything about his politics. No, yeah, same. I don't, I don't know where he falls, falls politically. Uh, but anyone would be better than Joe Biden. I mean, Joe, Joe Biden's like, he's a, 
he's a basket case, man. <laughs> I yeah, can't I mean, believe. Yeah. It's obvious from his interviews that he gives that he is actually losing the plot. That's not figuratively, <laughs> not not figuratively. He genuinely is. Like, he can't string a sentence together and he forgets his trailer for. And it, it's, 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 it's he forgets where he is as well. He doesn't know where he is. I'm here in uh, Vermont or Virginia, maybe uh, Denver. I'm not sure, but it's great to be here anyway. <laughs> Wherever I am. <laughs> So great to be in in a nondescript American town. <laughs> <laughs> but how could that possibly be? Like, it's a country. How many people in America? Two hundred fifty million or something, or three hundred million, or something like that. Population. Three hundred. I think it's three hundred million, isn't it? Let's have a look. Yeah, and we are honestly saying that this guy, this Joe Biden, is the the best possible candidate out of that. 250 million to be the president of the United States. Uh, or on the other hand. 328 million. 328 million people, yeah. I mean, there's got to be uh, someone in that country better qualified than Joe Biden. Uh, I'm sure there are many, but it's all about, <laughs> like, genuinely, there has to be many, but yeah. it's getting on the ticket, isn't it? Mm. I mean, Bernie Sanders seemed like a good option. I think another one. Who else is there? Elizabeth Warren. Have you heard much about her? <clears throat> oh, yeah. I mean, she she would have been way better than Joe Biden. Uh, you know. Yeah. But it was yeah, pretty so. it was pretty craven on her part that she couldn't uh, offer her her support to Bernie Sanders after she dropped out of the race. You know. Yeah. She just refused to endorse anyone. Just took a neutral position. Uh, yeah, and then she agreed to be Biden's potential uh, running mate as well. Though. Yeah, a bleak, a bleak future in prospect for the United States of uh, America, which yeah. consequently uh, means a bleak future for the rest of the world as well, with them being the dominant global power. Uh, mm. You know, it, it affects all of us, doesn't it? So, oh, absolutely. Well, they are the most powerful country on there. Mm. Um, oh, yeah, <clears throat> no, nothing positive there. Absolutely zero. <laughs> Zero, zero positive outcomes. Zero positives. Well, well, let, let's see if we can try and um, we'll get your get some positivity out from you. Um, life after lockdown. Yeah. I mean, there was this article I think in La, La Republica. They were showing images of how uh, beaches and restaurants and other public spaces would sort of be almost rearranged. To um, to cater for social distancing and things like that. Some of it looked it looked it looked wild, but the thing is, it could very much be a real possibility if that's going to be the future. I mean, definitely immediately after lockdown, I think that's going to happen. Mm. But long term, you know, over the next few months, next year, five years, whatever, how do you see this pandemic affecting general public life and public spaces after lockdown? Well, I mean, hopefully uh, a vaccine will end that uh, necessity for social distancing. But I don't know if you, once you uh, like end the lockdown, basically, I don't think people are really going to maintain this idea of social distancing, are they? You think about London as an example, like you can't uh, get the tube up and running fully and maintain social distancing. So once people start going back to work, the tube is going to be packed full of people. There's going to be no social distancing on the tube. Uh, and that's people packed on top of each other for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour. I mean, that's the general journey time people take to get to work in London. So I mean, but, but let's say um, uh, people who go to work, maybe the actual numbers reduce because they take more of this uh, digital approach of working from home video conferencing mm. etc and the yeah. numbers of that maybe uh reduce the numbers on the tubes and buses etc actually that has been i was reading some statistics that that has actually been borne out in in wuhan in the, even though they've lifted the lockdown now uh numbers on public transport in wuhan are still down 40 50 percent people haven't returned to to public transport so the but is that a case of you reckon uh, almost fear or is that a new approach taken by employers etc to make sure that yeah let's not 
let's not rush into this and have a, I don't know, a second wave or something. Let's I mean, try it's, this. It's probably, it's probably both. I don't have enough information about Wuhan again. I mean, we're going to have to, obviously we're going to have to go to Wuhan to do the live broadcast, you know, interview oh, people. How's your, how's your um, Chinese, your Mandarin? It's not, oh, it's, uh, it's non-existent, mate. Ni hao. Ni hao ma. That's high. Is that, is that, is, okay. And then, and then hi. hi, how are you? <laughs> so, you know, that's, that, that could be our interviewing style when we get to Wuhan. Yeah. I mean, that's... Well, we, a, can have, we can have some cards showing what we're trying to say. We can show yeah. working from home and working in a building and then do a little little emoji, so, you know, with two hands up saying which one. But, I mean, that, that could be a that could be a good consequence that comes from life post-virus because... This this uh, thing of people traveling less, going places less, using uh, online uh, meeting spaces, online means of communication, that's all a real positive for climate change, isn't it? I mean, these are things... Uh, absolutely, absolutely like agree with that. People have been talking about what we need to do to tackle climate change is just people using online facilities more to get things done. This Mate, have, you seen, have you seen some of those images of these cities with clear skies and, you know, with the impact of lack of less transportation and stuff, mm. the pollution going down, it's, yeah. it's actually the before and afters are incredible. And this is only in the space of a few months. But so this that's is definitely the, positive. The problem is our governments, their priority is going to be restarting GDP uh, growth, like re, reinvigorating the market. So the government's priority is going to be getting people out doing stuff, interacting, spending money to get the productive economy kick-started, which includes like international travel, uh, industrial production. When really, if we had any sort of long-term planning in our governments, their priority would be to look at the situation now, see the benefits that this has for climate change and, uh, you know, reimagining our economy, how we can provide what people need because uh, obviously that's very important we you know we uh, want people to to get all the things that they need regarding like food shelter that kind of thing but also taking into account like the the way we are currently going like the, the way the economy is managed is is, is damaging the, the planet and consequently damaging us so it's an opportunity to reimagine how our economy works and how we can prioritize providing what people need without going back into this excess of mass production that causes all the climate possibilities. So that would involve like uh, um, moving away from capitalism, move, moving towards a, a socialist organization of the society. But I mean, the prospect of that coming from the virus still looks pretty far away. Uh, our, the way our governments are currently ordered, they're going to be looking looking at ramping up production again and going back towards exactly as we were post-crisis. So our governments are not really interested in imagining another world. Uh, so re really it's up to us to, you know, smash the government, overthrow them and put a new society in its place. <laughs> Spoken like a true political activist, Nestor, <laughs> right there. <laughs> Um, but, you know, uh, you know the. Sorry, go on. No, no, go on. You, you go. You go. Uh, just a quick question on when you mentioned uh, the government trying to get travel industry up and running again. Um, how do you see certain countries around the world and maybe here at home border controls and things mm -hmm. happening? You know, the entrance and exiting mm -hmm. of countries shifting, and you know, will, will it just cause more delays? Will Will there be more initiatives? How do you think that's going to change? Because there still will be a, a num amount of fear within countries yeah. to let in X amount of foreigners. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's a big uh, movement in our politics for a number of years to increase border controls and also uh, a sort of uh, our political class as well. There's a big section of our political class that believes that border co controls are the solution to all our problems. So. <laughs> They tell us that if you want a better, if you want your NHS to improve, uh, stop letting close it so the border. Yeah, close the border. If you want a better education system, close the border. If 
you want uh, better housing, close the border. <laughs> now it's just a, it's just another it's just another thing they can add to their very long list. You know, if you want to uh, if you want to stop global global pandemics, close the border. I mean, it's a very uh, easy political sell for politicians because there's a knee jerk uh, reaction from a, a section of the population. It's very easy for people to always blame foreigners for our problems. Uh, and it stops any sort of self-examination. It absolves our political class for responsibilities for political decisions that they make. And that's the reason why our political class is so fond of latching on to this uh, close the border solution to all our political problems. So I'm sure oh, there's, I'm sure there's going to go on. <laughs> go on. No, so I'm worried we're giving these uh, these certain people a nice little strap line to use because close the border is sounding pretty catchy right now. Oh, you, you, you're buying into it. <laughs> so close the border. Close, close the border. border. <laughs> Running out of toilet roll, close the border. No no eggs in the supermarket, close the border. But we import our eggs from Ireland. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> the eggs can't get in. Yeah. No, no, I mean, Trump's already... I think he announced today like a, a, a complete uh, shutdown on immigration or something, isn't he? For sixty days. Uh, yeah, that's correct. So, you know, these, this political class is always going to jump on any opportunity to uh, to close borders. Uh, but you know, it's very important that we don't buy into this uh, as a solution. Closing borders. Uh, Are you aware of the? Um the situation in Ireland itself, because obviously nothing's been reported in the mainstream media, and I've not heard anything in terms of numbers, numbers of cases, that, you know, how they're dealing with lockdown. In Ireland? Yeah, uh, you know, you got any information? Yeah, so it seems like they, they locked down a bit quicker than we did in this country, and uh, also they locked down uh, almost immediately, like when they even had a small number of cases. So it seems to have stopped the, the spread, really, in Ireland. So there haven't been that many deaths there uh, in comparison I think I was reading a thread on Twitter where you, you if you look at their deaths per per hundred thousand, then they're they're massively uh, uh, doing massively better than we are in this country. Uh, yeah, so I think that's why there hasn't been that much reporting for it, from it here. If you they don't like uh, using comparators of uh, countries that make us look worse than we actually are. So uh, yeah. I mean, like we were saying earlier, a lot of, uh, it's not a lot, but a fair few countries in Europe have started easing their lockdown measures. Um, mm. I think in like, Austria and Germany in particular, mm. started easing it down. Um, mm. and I'm assuming their numbers maybe weren't so bad as well. They started earlier, so maybe their peak came and went sooner. Yeah, well, um, Germany, Germany did lots and lots of testing, didn't it? So if you're doing lots of testing, you can identify where the virus is. And then you can actually target your lockdowns. So I think that's what they did in South Korea. Uh, you identify which particular suburbs or whatever where the virus is, and then you can just lock down that specific area. So you don't have to close the entire national economy. So that's why countries like South Korea uh, are going to come out of this a lot better because they haven't had to lock down their, and, and damage their economy in such a sense. So, you know, the, the countries that have had to implement nationwide lockdowns, obviously they're economies, GDPs are going to take a huge hit. It would be very hard to recover. So if you're on top of the testing to begin with, then you, you know you can uh, control the spread of the virus and then come out of the, the, the crisis a, a lot quicker and a lot better than countries that didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to your earlier point when you said uh, government prioritised the economy ahead of stopping the, the health implications of this mm. pandemic I mean, based on what you said, had it been the other way around, mm. this could have been ended sooner potentially and the economy could have been up and running or whatever. Um, yeah. In less, yeah. less time. Exactly, less yeah. Time. So, yeah. The best way to protect the economy was to concentrate uh, on stopping the spread of the virus rather than protecting the economy, <laughs> mm. if, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you actually had the virus uh right well i think i had it yeah i didn't get a test obviously so your your experience there because you went to hospital as well didn't you i didn't go to hospital no oh you didn't go to hospital where where did you go didn't you go somewhere and request uh 
uh, a test or something. No, no, no. I just, I just isolated at home for for seven days. I rang one 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 at one point. No, no. My uh, my flatmate was a lot sicker than me, so he uh, he had prolonged symptoms. His went on for like ten, eleven, twelve days. Mine were only about five or six days. And uh, did he go to hospital or get? No, tested? no, he didn't. Well, I was thinking about calling an ambulance for him at one point. Uh, it was about three days. He sort of slept for almost three continuous days. Like he was only awake for two or three hours every day. And when he was awake, he was pretty unresponsive. He was he wasn't able to sort of uh, fully engage in a conversation and concentrate on what was saying. So it was making me a bit, definitely a bit worried for him, you know, because I was reading the online guidance and it says that if the parent, if the person seems incoherent, uh, and that couple with a shortness of breath, then to call 999. <clears throat> sure. So I, I think he was touch and go at one point. Uh, he, he came out of it, thankfully, but he could have, he could have just as easily have got worse. Uh, so, I mean, it's a pretty severe virus. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a pleasant experience. So I, I, even though mine was a shorter period of time that I had it, I still had some quite severe shortness of breath, which is very scary when you have it because you think you're sort of, uh, you don't understand really, like, why can't I breathe properly? I've, I've just tried to walk across the room uh, and I'm out of breath, that kind of thing. Uh, so it made, it made, made me feel like a sort of 75-year-old asthmatic, asthmatic heavy smoker uh you know it made you makes you feel very weak and vulnerable in that in that sense uh so pretty scary yeah and you can see how people uh you know really get affected by it if you're asthmatic or even if you're generally unfit you know if you're a bit uh if you're overweight generally unfit the virus is going to hit you a lot harder i think so uh big encouragement for all all, all of us to do do some cardio uh, and stop puffing on puffing on them uh, them vapes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think general health in total, like even um, mm. uh, alcohol and stuff. And I think that's one thing. Is I think I've noticed as well from my own experience. Being in lockdown, you do tend to you tend to drink a fair bit more out of boredom, yeah. I guess. And uh, especially like you, you've been locking down alone for weeks, haven't you? Just you on your lonesome. Uh, yeah, me and my anonymous lonesome self. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is difficult. I'm not going to lie. Um, there is some days where it's challenging and you do get really bored and really... But to be honest, I mean, I, you know, doing these Zoom chats, chatting to friends and family, mm-hmm. um, starting up this podcast, is always, it's, always, it's always fun, entertaining to talk to people. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you're always learning and stuff as well. So... That stuff keeps me occupied, um, but yeah, there are there are opportunities where you do drink a lot more than you would. Um, well, if you if you ever bored and you need to zoom me, zoom me. I'm, I'm here I, for you. I'm I will. You. I, mean, I think every time I zoom you now, I will record it because I think there could be multiple episodes we could do together because you are. Uh, as long as there's nothing, in, as long as there's nothing incriminating, and as long as you tell me you, you're recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it won't, it won't be a secret recording don't worry I'll let you know. <laughs> I think the, the, the incriminating stuff you'll have to maybe keep a keep a lid on yourself but no mm. it's all good it's just uh, it's people's points of view and this is the whole purpose of this yeah that you've got many interesting points you've got a wealth of knowledge in certain areas etc so why not get that out there and i'm sure there's many many people like you out there who yeah. want to get their voice heard and we can all learn from and just hear from so yeah, it's been pretty fun. Um, do, you, do you want to hear an unsubstantiated rumour? Hit me. Been told by local labs the plan is to ramp down testing as the number of patients in hospital fall and there is absolutely absolutely no plan to do any community testing. All right, that's a rumour you say, is it? Yeah, that's a rumour, yeah. Someone who's in the scientific community. So. so they're saying instead of ramping up testing, they're ramping down yeah, because the deaths in hospital are falling. So how much, I mean, how much lower can they can they get in terms of testing though? The, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they're still <laughs> scratching the surface. They're still promising a hundred thousand tests by the end of April. I mean, these people are full of shit, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, what's your What's your thoughts on the, um, the Premier League? You know, the updated time timeline from the Premier League came out 
and they were saying games will go ahead behind closed doors, etc. But I mean, that obviously brings up a lot of questions about player and non-playing staffs. I didn't own see health. that. Yeah, that came out. I think a few days ago. All right. Uh, they just moved the timeline down. I think I think it's July potentially or August, something like that. Yeah. But yeah. they try and get it back and running. But how would that work? In you know, how is that feasible still? With, mm. All right, you play in an empty stadium. That's fine. That gets rid of the the risk from all these all the fans. But still, there are a set number of people who have to be there, and they all have to make sure none of them have the virus. So how yeah. can it be certain? Yeah, I think that's what uh, I heard someone talking uh, on a football podcast that La Liga are looking at the same thing and they reckon they need about uh, 250 people in the stadium to uh, to actually run a game, to run one game. And what they want to do is uh, basically check everyone's fever before they're allowed into the stadium and stuff. Uh, but it seems like a, yeah, right. but see, it seems, yeah, you can be asymptomatic and still spread it, yeah. But it seems, I guess, it seems like a weird allocation of resources, doesn't it? If we're going to test all, if we're going to do actual coronavirus tests on people just so we can run football games, when you've got all these key workers that can't get tests, it would be very strange if this country started doing that. Uh, well, I think, I think listening from one of the um, uh, one of the Premier League uh, owners or directors, whatever, the other day, they were saying they were sort of handling the testing themselves. So obtaining these tests themselves outside of the government. So that was one way of doing it. But again, you don't know how reliable these tests are. And because um, there must be ways people get their hands on tests. So many people in the, in the you know, public limelight have been tested, but may, may not necessarily have been to hospitals and stuff, right? Yeah, they were all paying for private tests, weren't they? I think you could pay 400 quid and get a private uh, private test. So... So I'm sure clubs might be might even do that, and that's obviously it's a lot of money. But for yeah. maybe these football clubs, but why why hasn't um why hasn't the government uh, uh, commandeered this private testing and used it to help NHS workers? You know why they should they they should have just requisitioned it. You know, send the army in, smash through the doors of these private uh, testing companies, and force them to test <laughs> N- NHS workers or care but home they, workers, uh, that kind of thing. I mean. Because they're they're the ones in seriously need it the most, man. The people on the front line, yeah, and they can't even get it themselves. They can't even get the right equipment themselves. So exactly, yeah. I think, so why does I think that's why does fucking Idris Elba get a, a coronavirus test or Prince Charles gets one? You know, but none of these NHS workers can. There you go. Private, privately commanded. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So we'll see what happens with football and other sports and all that, and obviously the country as a whole um all right nesta we have uh talked for a long time is there anything you'd like to add on top of this before we uh say farewell oh, i've enjoyed it it's been fun uh excellent i uh, yeah. definitely enjoyed it and uh we will do it again soon we managed we'll to laugh about- a couple of times even though we're just talking about grim horrible <laughs> stuff <laughs> Well, that's key, isn't it? You, you got to laugh, I think, in times of uh, misery as well. Obviously, not about the misery, but you got to mm. find some time to be positive and have mm. a bit of laughter. So, anyway, mate, it's been a pleasure having you on, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you again soon. All right. Stay safe. All right. Take it easy. Cool, man. Chat. Cheers. Speak Cheers. Bye bye. Bye.